0: You're listening to episode 124 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I am Simon Jones.
1: And I'm Steph McKenna.
0: And it's Thursday, 26th of November 2020 here in Norwich. And Steph, you are back.
1: I am back after my couple of weeks of hiatus. I was doing a house move and had no internet, so it's all been very... uh living out of boxes and all of that sort of thing. So I'm finally set up and I can get back and join you, which is where I want to be.
0: Fantastic. I think this is a, a good example of 2020 lockdown working in that as we're recording this, you you literally have an engineer in your house trying to fix the internet.
1: <laughs> I do. Yeah. I'm using next door's internet because my neighbours have been very kind and uh, <laughs> yeah, just peak 2020 really, isn't it?
0: Exactly. And meanwhile, I, uh, my son is at home because there was a COVID case at his school. So we have a, a week of homeschooling, in quotes, which uh, you know is more, more or less successful.
1: Absolute chaos. At least we have the, the consistency of work and of books to keep us company.
0: Exactly. Yes. And we're, we're nearly at the end of 2020. So we're getting there. Almost there. On the podcast today, we have John Mullen talking about his book, The Artful Dickens, which just came out. Uh, But before we get to that, I thought it would be worth mentioning that we have a whole bunch of creative writing online courses on the website. And they're selling extremely fast, aren't they, Steph?
1: They are. They really are. They're flying off the off the digital shelves this year. So we've got our early bird offer at the moment for level one courses, which is offering 10% discount until Wednesday the 9th of December. And those places which are very limited, we've got about 15 places per course, they are filling up very quickly. So if you're interested in studying online with us in collaboration with the really prestigious Creative Writing School at the University of East Anglia, have a look at our website under courses, Premium tutored courses by UEA, and we cover all kinds of genres.
0: We also have a campaign running at the moment to raise some funds for the Escalator campaign. So, this is an annual thing we do to support new and upcoming writers and give them some assistance in their very, very early careers. And in the past, we've had 10 people every year that we, we help, but uh, this year, The funding is only stretched to six and we're attempting to raise some money to help us get our quota back up to 10 because the more writers we can help, the better. If you'd like to get involved with that, then do check out the website where you can find full details. So
1: Simon, tell us a little bit about the conversation that you had with John Mullen about the Artful Dickens.
0: Yeah, so John is a professor of English at UCL He's the Lord Northcliffe Chair of Modern English Literature. Uh, He's also a broadcaster and journalist, has contributed regularly to The Guardian, and he was also a judge for the Man Booker Prize in 2009. As such, I was feeling quite intimidated about this conversation. (laughs) Um, I was very aware that ordinarily when we, you'll know this, Steph, when we do podcast interviews with authors, ordinarily, you know, you read their new book that's coming out or some previous books so that you can have an informed conversation and this time around I was acutely aware that I had to read John's new book but his book was about Dickens so I had to kind of also know about Charles Dickens's work and having that kind of double author insight uh, was seriously stressing me out particularly because John is such an expert on this kind of stuff.
1: Did you do a quick rewatch of Muppets Christmas Carol?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, I, I relaxed into the chat when, when John noted that The Muppet's Christmas Carol is one of the better adaptations of the work. And actually, uh, it's a, it a wonderful conversation, really interesting stuff, whether you're really familiar with Dickens or not. And, and John is so good at kind of sharing his enthusiasm and knowledge about literature from that, that era and Dickens' work in particular. And I, I needn't have worried because it's a really wonderful chat about all things Dickens and I was really interested in all sorts of bits and pieces so John talks about how Dickens serialized a lot of his work which is something that interests me in particular because it's kind of had a resurgence online and we talk about that a little bit about how you know these days novels come out as finished pieces as books but back in the day they came out weekly or monthly in magazines. John talks about examining Dickens's original manuscripts which you can Still, go and see, and Dickens seemed to have made a particular effort to make sure these things were still around after his time. We also we also cover how, because he was so popular and so successful, that almost undermined him being recognised as a great writer, and that's a lot of what John is trying to kind of address and redress in the Artful Dickens, his new book. So yeah, it's uh, it's good stuff, and I think you can't help but kind of be affected by John's enthusiasm for the subject. So let's jump into my chat with John, which we recorded about a week ago. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Pleasure. It's a real pleasure.
0: So yeah, we're here to talk about your new book, The Artful Dickens. And um, I have to admit to not having read much Dickens for a very long time. I think I read some at school. And subsequently to that, I've seen what feels like countless adaptations <laughs> yeah. of his work over the years. Um, it seems like every year there's, there's a couple of new adaptations that appear. And what I've really enjoyed reading your book is the kind of pleasure of diving back into Dickens from your perspective as an, as an expert on him. And it's kind of made me want to basically go back and <laughs> read everything by him again. It feels like a really fresh perspective.
2: Well, that's good. I mean, the whole point of the book is to really make people think oh actually i'd really like to read some dickens now <laughs> or reread reread some dickens in some yes. cases but anyway yeah that is absolutely the point
0: and i think what's interesting is that when it comes to charles dickens it's very easy to kind of make the assumption that you already know everything about him mm-hmm. and his work. Um, you know, even if you haven't read everything, you know, you've you've seen it a million times, either on stage or on films or in TV. It's kind of so prevalent in in our culture, I suppose. Yes. That it's also, you know, from a more academic perspective, I suppose, easy to assume that everything is already known <laughs> that yes. there is to know. And I was curious about, you know, at what point did you decide? Right, I I've got more to say here.
2: Well, I suppose. Um... I'm not sure there was a point, but it was a kind of gradual thing that um, I just, more and more, I suppose, reading Dickens, and I guess because that's what I'm paid to do, teaching it, you know, I teach students, undergraduates, Dickens. um, I notice more and more that, of course, there are lots of books about Dickens. And there's also a great deal about, about Dickens in as it were, newspapers and on TV and radio, you know, there has been recently, but I think, you know, throughout my adult life, there has been. He's a sort of big character in our cultural imagination. And yet, and yet, and yet, with all that output, there seemed to me, just increasingly, there seemed to me to be um, something that people weren't, really talking about, and that actually academics, my own profession, were particularly bad at talking about, which is, um, well, the first sentence of my book is, what is so good about Dickens's novels? Boom. And I mean, (laughs) you know, you could go to many of the books on the library shelf in my university, in the Dickens section, and not find that question much addressed. And Getting interested in Dickens, it seemed to me that that actually wasn't a, a modern thing. What was really striking was that even in his own lifetime, his contemporaries, critics, sometimes even some of his friends, uh, like Thackeray, were sort of saying, oh, yeah, well, obviously, he's very entertaining and everybody loves him and he does these characters and you know, blah, 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 and Christmas, blah, blah, blah. Um but without kind of crediting him for any sort of skills or inventiveness or um, uh, audacity. And it, it struck me that there was a bit of a mismatch, really, between um, Dickens' sophistication and brilliance as a writer and how he was received.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the, the notion of him as this kind of great entertainer seems to be regarded as being kind of mutually exclusive with him being a great writer yes, as if yes. the two things can't go together
2: yes exactly so i mean there's a long history of that and and clearly in a way um implicit in your introduction it was the fact that his adaptability uh, um his dramatizability has played some part in that it's almost as if the more films you get Um, the more, the less seriously he's taken as a writer. Um, And, you know, take one very, very obvious, simple example of that. I think, I can't actually prove it, although I can go quite a long way towards it. I think A Christmas Carol, which is a novella, really, uh, not a full-length novel, is the most adapted fictional work in the English language. Maybe in any language, but certainly in the English language, for the stage, for radio, for film, for television, musically, you know, um, when you get to the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is actually, I think, one of the best ones, <laughs> um, you know that you've got something here, which, has, as you were saying earlier, some sort of outlived the book. Um, I think people will be surprised if they go back and sort of read the book at how brilliantly well written it is you know it's as if everybody credits him as having produced these sort of extraordinary characters and this heartwarming fable and so on and and he's diminished as a writer in many people's eyes for the entertaining sort of success of that
0: yeah and i mean this is something that seems to happen again and again in in kind of critical circles in the the more popular something is, the harder it is for it to be acknowledged as being good. Yes, as well,
2: yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I think there there are there are other examples of that, and that you know that's we're not <laughs> that that's a long standing thing. You find examples in almost any century of that. I mean, for goodness' sake, in the you know in the in the seventeenth century, people were saying Shakespeare can't be that good because the people really like it. Um, <laughs> um, I think with dickens it's peculiar because um when he was writing he was doing all sorts of things which i argue in my book novelists may do a bit nowadays um especially literary novel novelists and think of as kind of quite experimental but he tried out some of these things a century and a half ago so you know i don't know i give uh, an example, well-known example, is Bleak House, fantastic novel, and it's divided up into some chapters which are entirely in the past tense, and some chapters which are entirely in the present tense. And the ones in the past tense are narrated in the first person by Esther, the heroine, and the ones in the present tense are narrated by in in the third person, as it were, impersonally. And these kind of don't exactly even alternate. They weave around each other in a kind of quite unpredictable way. And this was a weird way to write a novel. I mean, it's the kind of thing people do now if they want to try and get on the Booker long list, you know, <laughs> to show that they're sort of proper literary novelists. Um, in In the 1850s, this was an absolutely strange and unprecedented thing to do. Nobody commented on it. Hmm. Nobody who reviewed his novels at the time seems to have commented as if what he was doing was so innovative that people couldn't even notice it. <laughs> and and I think, I mean, I sort of, you know, try and describe quite a lot of examples of that sort of thing in his career that he wasn't just this sort of off the cuff um laughter and tears popular entertainer i mean he was entertaining and you know not the least of his achievements is i think he's the funniest <laughs> funniest great novelist in english literature but he was also a very sophisticated writer and an incredibly daring one
0: yeah well, you make such a good case for the fact that he was experimental and pushing boundaries and trying new things which you know, as you say, it makes it all the more strange that he was maybe dismissed a little bit at the time in terms of his writing skill and what he was trying to do.
2: Yeah. I mean it, you know, one of his great sins, of course, was he sold in huge numbers. <laughs> and <laughs> How um, <dare> he? <laughs> y- you know, yes, and 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 Trollope in, in Trollope, you know, Trollope's a good novelist. I like Trollope. Not a great novelist, but a good one. And in his novel The Warden, he sort of he satirizes Dickens as Mister Popular Sentiment, um, who I, I, and the implication is if somebody sells so many novels, they must be as it were peddling easy sentiments to the masses, um, and you know that that thought I think has lingered in a lot of criticism of, of Dickens, but I I think it's simply not true, and that although there are certainly sentimental aspects to his writing. It doesn't mean that he wasn't formally a very kind of original and, and very testing writer, actually, you know. And, uh, I mean, and, you know, another example, I give the sort of thing that people started doing in the late 20th century. You know, he does these things. I don't know if you know, Simon, his his wonderful, un- incomplete final novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, but, um, which I think would have been one of his best if he'd lived to complete it. Hmm. And 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 the, the villain, as it were, of the novel is a drug addict. And when the novel starts, it's narrated without any explanation at all as if you are in his head on a sort of opium trip. And a couple of paragraphs you don't know what the hell's happening because the narration is sort of opiated if you see what i mean mm. um and, you know again this is the sort of thing you might expect in literary fiction in the late 20th or early 21st century absolutely weird for the 19th century and wonderful
0: yeah, it sounds like people at the time, as you say, always couldn't get their heads around it, and instead just decided to almost ignore it. Um, you quote Trollope at, uh, towards the end of the book, saying, um, "Talking of Dickens, saying it is jerky, ungrammatical, and created by himself in defiance of rules." Yes, almost <laughs> yeah. kind of um, sounding slightly annoyed that Dickens is is breaking these rules and trying new things.
2: Yes, yeah, no, I think you, I think he was, and and I mean that's of course. That's Trollope talking about his prose style, and I think that um, you know Dickens was in some ways liberated by his own personal history, his upbringing, his lack of education, um, his self education to a large extent. In to, he's liberated to disobey the rules of polite English. <laughs> so it, it wasn't just just a you know the tricks with narrative structure and types of narration, it's also just the sentences he wrote. And I mean, to me, the great thing about Dickens and the thing I've tried to be true to is you can open any Dickens novel at random, pretty well at random, and just start reading. Don't have to be at the beginning of a chapter, just start reading, and there will be fireworks going off in the sentences. (laughs) And that's partly because he used... Um, and creatively exploited lots of the things about language and the English language that an, a, a, a writer like Trollope, who was educated in polite English, was educated not to use, you know, repetition and cliché and um, lists and hyperbole, um, weird flights of figurative fancy. Um These were the things which I think are often there in the way people talk and the way we all talk, but are sort of ironed out of literary style usually. And and Dickens didn't iron them out.
0: No, and I found that really interesting because when I studied English and and film as well at university, the way it was approached was very much that understanding the rules in large part was so that you could then break them or yes. bend them and experiment yes. a little bit and it feels like that's the kind of the, the common way of looking at these things yes. these days but yes. presumably back then that wasn't how it was you know, it was polite english or nothing <laughs>
2: yes well yes i mean you know polite english meant that a great writer likes of the 19th century could use those rules to do extraordinary wonderful things you know george Eliot. Okay, she, I mean, she didn't because she was a woman, she didn't have the kind of uh the kind of education that an educated man would have, but still she wrote educated in her narrative voice at least, educated prose, and she used the conventions of educated prose to write wonderfully and sometimes perhaps bafflingly. Complex and subtle sentences, <laughs> which re- 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 which reflected the complicated motives of her characters. Um, so it's not as if polite English disabled writers who used it, but but Dickens, Dickens, I think more than any other novelist, certainly of the nineteenth century, maybe ever, realised that there were creative energies in sort of colloquial English that a writer could tap and i mentioned i mean i'll give you a simple example i mentioned um uh, a christmas carol and you know a christmas carol starts in this extraordinary way no other writer would start can i just read you a couple of sentences mm, just two sentences so it starts it starts with the best colon in english literature <laughs> marley was dead colon to begin with, <laughs> I mean, isn't what a witty, brilliant way to start? It is beginning with, and he was dead to begin with, but he's going to come back to life. Uh, <laughs> Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Now, you know don't use cliches children that's the first (laughs) law and there's a follows a paragraph all about doornails so having used this um uh cliche the narrator who is as it were dickens speaking starts saying i don't know what's particularly dead about a doornail why not a coffin nail and he starts he goes off to talk about doornails and it's it's, it's it's wonderful. It's brilliant. It's daring. It's, it's also kind of clever because, of course, it literally brings a dead bit of language back to life again. Dead as a doornail suddenly becomes this living item um, of figurative English. And, you know, when we speak to each other, we all relish cliches. We all love them. And we adapt them, and we make use of them. We don't try and avoid them. And Dickens's narrative prose understands that in a way that nobody else's does.
0: Presumably, by tapping into a lot of those colloquialisms and you know acknowledging the way that humans actually do communicate, um, that's probably in large part why he's always been so popular.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it, it, he. I think you're right. It's a sh- it's a it's a shrewd thought that that. Um, his his sort of closeness to the energies of spoken English was one of the things that very much helped him to reach such a wide uh, readership. And of course, it's there in you know one of the other chapters of my book is about something that people have certainly talked about before, which is um, the way his characters talk, the idiolects, as the linguists call them, how. All those hundreds of characters who actually appear in his novels and speak, each one of them has their own way of speaking. Um, and because it's Dickens, not only do they have their own ways of speaking, but sometimes they even have their own ways of coughing or humming, or <laughs> you know, he even uses as you listeners will know who've read Little Dorrit, the key thing about how William Dorrit, Dorrit, who's a kind of certain kind of moral hypocrite, speaks is to do with the way he uses self-interjections like hum and ha. And of course, in reality, that is often what's distinctive about the way a person speaks. And Dickens catches that and he makes out of this little habit the kind of most self-revealing thing about William Dorrit, which he's always hesitating as though he's making a kind of very careful moral discrimination. But in fact, he's always evading the truth. Um, And it's all there in his ha's and hums. I mean, (laughs) it's just wonderful. And. Again, something I don't, know, I don't think any other novelist before him or even for quite a long time after him had tried.
0: Yeah, something you uh, cover in the book as well is the fact that Dickens was really interested in magic and performance, and yes, you know this was all going on outside of his writing, but that, that kind of attitude and an approach, again, I suppose, to entertaining people kind of infused his writing as well.
2: Yes, I mean it did. I start by in my first in my introduction by pointing out something i didn't know when i began working on the book which was that dickens was a very accomplished amateur magician (laughs) although once you get to know about dickens that is so not surprising (laughs) i think I, i i don't know i think that's a bit of a metaphor for the way he he was as um a writer that you were supposed to take pleasure in his trickery you know and his verbal trickery um and his verbal and, and, and his sort of narrative ingenuity. So, um, yes, a kind, of, a kind of literary conjurer. And, and maybe in that you can see why contemporaries might have thought of that as sort of somehow rather cheap entertainment, where I would think of it as a sort of a, a, a really sophisticated skill
0: it's easy to regard things that are entertaining as being cheap in some way when actually to accomplish something that feels effortless to read is actually extremely difficult whether it's you know a book or a film or anything else
2: yes yes and i mean you can see it you know in my uh, i did quite a lot of uh i spent quite a lot of time with the the surviving manuscripts of some of Dickens's novels, um, most of which, not all, but most of which are in the library of the Victorian Albert Museum, um, because he carefully preserved them as if wanting (laughs) plodding academics like me to take note of them in future years. (laughs) Um, And it's very striking that, though, of course, he was writing for this so, popular medium that he himself pioneered—the the the, the ins- novel by installments. You know, he pioneered the, especially the monthly installments, and and of course he was writing these things only, as it were, a couple of installments ahead of them being published so he hadn't written it he didn't write it all and split it up into parts and then publish it Mm. um as a so for instance a tv drama now a six-part thriller on sunday evenings they make the whole thing before it's broadcast but no he was writing as it was being published so you had, had to really commit as one might say i mean imagine it if you're a writer having to commit to the first and second and third and fourth installments of a very complicated, very complexly plotted novel whilst you were still writing the 10th and 11th installments. I mean, it's quite a scary thought, I think. Um, but anyway, he, 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 that's how he he did his novels. And And one thing that you really see if you sit with the manuscripts is how even though he's writing at speed under great pressure um and there are no second third and fourth drafts you know the 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 first draft is it but he's minutely correcting rewording recalibrating um all the time and so you can see the spontaneity yeah but you can see also the absolutely minute artistic attention to each sentence
0: yeah exactly and that's the stuff that Critics maybe wouldn't have recognised the amount of effort that was going into what actually ended up on the page in the end. Yeah, um, all, the, all the stuff you cover about the manuscripts it's fascinating. Uh, I love, I love that they exist and that yes. you can see that process.
2: I love that they exist. You're absolutely right. I love that they exist. And you know, I mean, um, anyone listening to this to this podcast can try to go online and 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 see them on a screen. And you can do that, um, not all of them, but samples of them. But actually, they're so difficult to read that even on the, you know, most minutely pixelated (laughs) digital image, you can't, it's really difficult to make them out. You really have to look at them in the flesh, as it were, and very, very closely, because he wrote very, very small. And then he crossed out and crossed out and crossed out in these strange sort of looping strange inks of loop to make things as illegible as possible and then wrote things in an even smaller sort of uh, <laughs> um, um lettering and of course the lettering is itself a bit faded now so that makes it harder still and actually yeah you have to sort of try to see it in the flesh but it's there i mean you know the, and i have to say um you know that's a name name checking um the uh uh the librarians curators at the it's called the national art library in the bna were fantastic and incredibly helpful and you know it's miraculous you say you send an email and you say um i want to come in tomorrow and look at the manuscript of david copperfield please and they say yep fine we'll have it rating And then you get in and there it is. And it's not a fair copy. It's what he wrote when he first wrote it, you know. And when he starts um, uh, the first chapter, that was him starting it. I can't, I mean, I've looked at lots of literary manuscripts in my life. And I I can think of no other example where you feel as close to the sort of, the, the actual exciting moment of creation as you do with his manuscripts.
0: Mm. I, I love the bit uh, where, where you mention how he liked to send off quite messy manuscripts that were difficult to pass because <laughs> that meant that the the proofers and the the printers would pay attention. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's what he said. He said, "Oh, he said never." He said to another writer, I think. Um, uh, uh, I don't know if this lesson would go nowadays for, for, for professional authors, but he said, never never make fair copies because if you make fair copies, it looks really, really good. They will give your work to the most inexperienced sort of boy in the print shop to set up the print. He said, whereas if the manuscript's almost um, um, illegible, you will get the best guy in the print shop. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. I mean, yeah. and, and I mean... Looking at his manuscripts you really you do respect the skills of the person people who um who had to turn it into print because we have the proofs of, of many of quite a few of these novels not all of them but we have some of the proofs and he was still correcting away a proof stage and they didn't make many mistakes you know hmm. they really didn't
0: yeah it's a shame to think that writers now you know, many of whom will be writing uh, digitally. That these kind of manuscripts, where you you know you see the process scribbled all over the page, uh, probably unlikely to exist for yes. academics. You know, two hundred years from now.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, Simon. That's something. Yeah, that's something I ponder sometimes, um, um, because of course, for literary academics in particular, manuscript evidence is especially. You know, wonderful and alluring, not, not just because of that sort of uh, the magic that we all feel of sort of the original, you know, the original. But, but also because sometimes with those writers for whom the manuscripts exist, it's possible, it's a way you get as close as possible to something like what the author had in mind. You know, and that's why literary academics are so interested by literary manuscripts. Because if you see that—I don't know—to name another person for whom lots of manuscripts survive, if you see that Wordsworth originally wrote the line this way and then crossed it out and wrote it another way, you sort of feel that you can you can see what he's up to, can't you? You can see what he's thinking, what he's doing, um, and of course equally frustrating when there are great authors like Shakespeare or Jane Austen for whom pretty well Shakespeare you know no yeah both of them pretty much nothing hardly anything survives of manuscript evidence so all you have is the printed text and you can't get beyond or behind that and I and I said earlier you know jokingly that Dickens it's as if Dickens left it for people like me to look at. But it's not entirely a joke. I mean, I did, I do think that he wanted posterity to know that he wrote with a careful design. <laughs> so he left not just the manuscripts of pretty much all his novels from um, sort of from about a third of the way his career, from Dombey and Son onwards, Um, But he left his working notes, so he made what he called mems for all his novels, certainly all the ones in monthly installments, which were, um, you know, quite careful chapter plans of how they were going to go. And he used these practically as he was writing to keep things recorded, you know, because he was having to to plan ahead all the time. And he very carefully preserved them, um, and they survive. And good paperback editions of his novels actually reproduce them usually at the back. And they survived because he wanted us to see, you know, he wanted us to know. He wasn't just sort of doing it on <laughs> on the hoof, as it were.
0: Mm. Yeah, the, the serialized nature of his writing, which, you know, you cover kind of throughout the book in terms of how that influenced him, that really excited me, partly because uh, that's how I've been writing for the last oh, few really? years. Oh, you know. right. In my own kind of amateur way. Um, but what I found really interesting is that you know this was such an important form and a way of publishing back when he was writing. And then certainly in the 20th century, it feels like it kind of went away. Yes. Um, and maybe you, you retain some of it maybe in TV and radio, yes. slightly different yes. way. Um, yes. And I think what I find exciting now is that some of that is coming back on the internet right um, certainly in you know amateur circles like where i write uh, that notion of you know putting up new chapters every week or every month yes. and yes. having readers come back over a very long period so you know rather than reading a book in a week you you're reading this thing over the course of years potentially yeah um, and i just it, i find it such a compelling form both as a writer and a reader that i'm surprised
2: that it went away i suppose right okay yes um yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's interesting. I wasn't, you know, it's not something I'm so aware of that, that, that it has been coming back in, in sort of with the written word. I mean, I'm aware there'd be one or two experiments. I think Stephen King tried doing a serial, a novel mm-hmm. in parts, didn't he, a few years ago. And I am most aware of it, as well, one of the examples you give, uh, as, as something which still um, is very important in TV drama. Um, especially sort of thrillers and things, um, that you watch something, and even if you're watching it on iPlayer or you know or something like that or as a box set, and you can glut yourself, it still depends upon the um, the way in which you have to wait (laughs) for the completion of what's hinted at in one part um i remember the um you know recent example of that which seemed to be very dickensian actually it's not perhaps so recent but i don't know if you watched some that really when it first came out that brilliant um danish um it seems it seems actually unfair to call it a a crime drama because but it was about a murder the killing did you ever see the killing I didn't I know
0: lots of people who did (laughs)
2: okay and I think it was it in 20 I think it might have even been in 20 parts maybe it was 12 pardon my ignorance but I think it might have been as many as 20 hour-long parts and with many a digression and red herring and I'm not going to, sp- well, this does slightly spoil it, but just to say that in the end, the identification of the murderer, as it were, all depended on a sequence in the first few minutes of the very first installment, a sequence which... You hadn't even noticed, as it were. Yes, do you see what I mean? And, mm. and it's so, and it was so satisfying to suddenly sort of realize, oh my God, of course, of course. And partly satisfying because uh, a carefully plotted installment narrative, um, you know, encodes the end in the beginning, as it were. So you know, you you ha- you feel you have to feel as the reader of Great Expectations or Bleak House would certainly have felt. Well I don't know quite how this is going to work out but I know the guy who's written it does. <laughs> yes, you want that faith that they yes, know where it's going. you want you do, you do want that faith that, that you know where it's going, but it's really interesting to think that that actually that might be something that writers are kind of rediscovering. Um I wasn't I wasn't sort of aware of that.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's anything that's broken through in terms of the kind of more professional established end Um, but certainly there's a kind of online culture of people dabbling with this
2: right Um, right well I was just going to say that the the, yeah what you say is interesting because it sounds as though it's something that writers are doing by choice rather than compulsion because the thing about Dickens was I think what distinguishes him from some of his contemporaries is that quite a lot of them also wrote in installments but tended to feel it as an oppression <laughs> you know a necessity to which they had to bend because that was how you sold novels um or one really important way you sold novels and for dickens he, very characteristically he turned the necessity into a kind of creative opportunity um so you know, the business of what, I don't know, t- take a very simple example. Early on in Great Expectations, which was published in weekly installments, um, Pip is visiting Miss Havisham's house for, I think, the second time, and he encounters a mysterious and unknown man on the dark stair- stairway, and the man sort of grabs him and speaks to him threateningly. And he says the thing as a sort of 10 or 11-year-old child he finds most threatening and unnerving about this man is the smell. And very characteristic of Dickens, his novels are full of smells. And it's a smell of perfumed soap. And as a child, he thinks, why why does he smell of perfumed soap? Is he a doctor? (laughs) No, he can't be a doctor. He's too rough and frightening a man to be a doctor. And anyway, that's it. That's gone. And then weeks later, for the reader, years later for the character, he meets him again in the three jolly bargemen, the inn. And he's arrived, this man, to tell him that he has great expectations. And he's a lawyer, Mr. Jaggers, and he's carrying the same smell. And then weeks and weeks later, and many years later for the character, when he's a young man and he goes up to London, he visits Mr. Jaggers' office and he discovers the secret of the smell. (laughs) And after a whole day dealing with these very... Uh, low-life characters who are his clients. Mr. Jaggers's clients are those accused of murder, robbery, um, and he works in the shadows of Newgate Prison. Um, at the end of his working day, he washes off his clients, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pip says, and with this perfume soap, um, you know, like a kind of conscienceless Lady Macbeth or something and and you know how extraordinary Dickens had that thought the soap, the smell in his head when he wrote an, inst- an early instalment, he hadn't got to the later instalments and he actually uses the time it took for a reader to wait for the smell to explain itself, he uses that so as it were, as Pip realises so the reader sort of it detonates something in the reader's head, if you see what I mean. Um and you write, Oh yes, that smell, that smell again, now I understand. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? I think so.
0: Yeah, and I think the intensity of the payoff for the reader is is so much more satisfying, you know, if you have in real time been with this story yes. for weeks or months, whereas you know, it can still be a very satisfying story if you read it over a few days, but it's not quite the same, is it?
2: No, it's not. It's not. And of course, but I mean, I <laughs> you can still read a Dickens novel like that, but but you have to be very sort of, it's quite an artificial thing to do. I guess the tele, you know, you talked about at the beginning about all the televised and filmed versions of it. The one that tried to reproduce that experience a few years ago was Andrew Davis's version The Bleak House, which um, was done in 12 weekly episodes. Um, and it was before iPlayer, so you actually had to wait a week each time. Mm. And that gave a bit, of course, it was weekly instead of the original novel was monthly, and it was 12 parts. The original novel was 20 parts. But still, it, it, it gave some of that, it, it did something to try and revive that experience in, in a kind of really interesting way, uh, I think. But um, but yes, that that there was a bit of advice that, is sometimes attributed to Dickens' great friend, Wilkie Collins. But in fact, I think it was said by another novelist called Edward Yates in in the 19th century, a bit of advice to anybody who was writing fiction uh, for the Victorian reader and using the instalment form, he said his bit of advice was make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the skill of making people wait was part of of what was required of the novelist in the 19th century
0: yeah I wonder is, is there any record of you know once once the the serialized forms were compiled into novels is there any evidence of if Dickens preferred a particular way for them to be
2: yeah I mean he he there is um, if, if I, I don't know if this is what 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 you mean but but he more than once stated his his preference for monthly um Uh, serials over weekly serials Mm. Um, and he just you know it was far harder with a weekly serial to get to I mean there are various reasons partly you know simply the discipline for the writer was really really you know fearsome for a weekly serial but also um, um, a monthly serial allowed him to do his multiple plotting which he does in things like Bleak House and Our Mutual Friend, which you couldn't do with a weekly serial. And also, um, uh, I mean, actually, not Dickens, but one of the writers who wrote for him, Elizabeth Gaskell, who wrote because um, Dickens conducted, as he put it, these... um, weekly um, magazines, I guess you'd call them, um, in which fiction appeared. And uh, Gaskell, two of the most famous ones were Household Words and All the Year Round. And Gaskell wrote um, for All the Year Round. And she wrote um, uh, one of her, oh no, Household Words, I think it was in her best known novel, one of her best known novels, North and South. And she said the trouble with um, writing weekly novels is when you get to the end, The sort of denouement, the kind of resolution of all the strands is really impossible to do within the space of a week, you know, a little weekly installment. You need much more space to do it. Um, uh, And and you know what you mean, because actually, I I don't know if you've noticed this, but when television does, and film uh, does, 19th century fiction big problem that adapters uh, usually have is the end, how you tie everything up in, you know, in a very short space of time, in effect. And it's it's very, very difficult. And Dickens felt that only the monthly installment could do justice to the denouement of the elaborate plotting
0: Yes, interesting. You always need a, a double-length or quadruple-length yeah, well, final chapter.
2: Yeah, well, he did that. And, of course, TV adapters have sometimes done that, haven't they? Um, but he did that. So, his invariably, his monthly installments, the last two were published together. So, if they were in 20 parts, which most of them were, parts 19 and 20 appeared together to give him the room to do that.
0: Right, yes, excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for talking today about this it's a it's a great book that uh i think for people that love dickens they'll obviously love the insight that you've put into it but i think perhaps uh, more intriguingly people who maybe haven't paid enough attention to dickens or have perhaps dismissed him in the past might find some new insight here
2: okay well great well i hope so i hope so and it's a great pleasure and i confess a kind of self-indulgence for me to 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 get the chance to talk at such length about it (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Okay, great. Thank you.
1: Thanks to John for coming on the podcast. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You'll find us over on Facebook. And to find out more about our premium courses, about our Escalator fundraising campaign, and to check out more podcast episodes, head to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk.
0: Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you happen to be listening to us. Thanks again for listening, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode.